0: Hello, and welcome to the Vijay Himong Podcast. Today we are joined by Naval Daver from University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Eunice Wong from Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Felicitas Toll from Hanover Medical School. In today's podcast, they will discuss the latest updates in the field of acute myeloid leukemia following the ASCO and EHA 2021 meetings.
1: Hello, my name is Nawal Davar. I am an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here today with uh, my friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Eunice Wang and Dr. Felicitas Thal. And we're gonna be doing a round-up discussion of the ASCO EHA, as well as uh, touching on some of the exciting topics in AML that are coming uh, later this year. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Dr. Wang to introduce herself, please.
2: Hi, my name is Dr. Eunice Wang. I'm the Chief of the Leukemia Service here at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York. And I'm delighted to be here to talk about our impressions of the 2021
0: ASCO EHA meetings.
1: And uh, Dr. Thal.
0: Hi, my name is Dr. Felicitas Thal. I'm uh, an attending physician at Hanover Medical School in Germany in Hanover. And it's a pleasure here to join you all. My main interest is AML and MDS, and I'm looking forward to this discussion.
1: Okay, well, wonderful. So I think to, to start with, um, you know, maybe we can touch on some of the highlights uh, that was presented at ASCO and EHA. Of course, ASCO is a much heavier solid tumor meeting, but I think there were some interesting uh, long-term updates and a few novel concepts. So. Uh, Maybe I'll turn it first to Dr. Wang to discuss uh, some of the three updates that she found interesting from both ASCO and EHA, and also how she sees some of these uh, moving into the future.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. So in terms of uh, flit 3 inhibitor therapy, as you know, we currently have two commercially approved flit 3 inhibitors, mitostorin in the upfront setting with chemotherapy, as well as gilteritinib as monotherapy in the relapsed refractory flit 3 mutant AML setting. So this year at ASCO and EHA 2021, we did see some important updates on gilteritinib as well as its increasing use uh, in combination regimens. Uh, there was data presented by Sasha Pearl and colleagues, of which we participated, looking at long term outcomes of patients treated on the admiral trial. And in, in that particular abstract, we saw that patients who had received gilteritinib on the admiral trial and proceeded on to transplant had. Uh, some uh, a- actual long-term survivors with significant numbers of patients surviving two to three years with the combinatorial approach of transplant following gilteritinib. So uh, this parallels kind of what we saw in the ratified trial where the best survival in flip patients treated with mitostorin 7 plus 3 were those that underwent uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantation in, FLT- in CR1. And certainly that is what would be recommended based on this new data in CR2 for these patients. Uh, we also saw gilteritinib being used more and more, however, in combination therapy. There is phase one data presented by Pratt's and colleagues with the final results of their phase 1b study, looking at uh, 38 patients with flip mutant disease treated on uh, that study with gilteritinib in combination with cytarabine and anthracycline-based chemotherapy, Uh, This combination was very well tolerated, uh, did not seem to be dependent on anthracycline chosen, uh, although the number of patients was very small, and importantly resulted in very high MRD negative uh, rates as detected by a FLIP 3 MRD assay performed at successive time points. I believe at the time after second consolidation, 85% of patients were considered flip 3 MRD negative. Uh, and this has laid the groundwork for a precog study as well as phase three study in Europe uh, comparing gilteritinib 7 plus 3 with our standard mitostorin 7 plus 3 in the newly diagnosed setting. And lastly, don't want to leave out my esteemed colleagues at MD Anderson who presented uh, their data um, as well as with other colleagues on uh, combinations of uh, gilteritinib plus venetoclax and combinations of triplet therapy using a FLT3 inhibitor and HMA as well as venenoclax uh, for the relapse refractory setting. I'll turn this back to Dr. Daubert to discuss the uh, Giltrid and venenoclax studies, but just suffice it to say that in the relapse refractory setting, doublets or even potentially triplets are appearing to be able to be given with some degree of myelosuppression, which is manageable, uh, with very high response rates in the relapse refractory setting, even more, uh, up to 100% response rates in the newly diagnosed setting.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Wang. I think it's it's a good problem we have nowadays as to what doublets and, and triplets to apply and you know how to optimize them. And absolutely, you know, with the Veneto Clax which is a multi-center study that uh, we participated in jessica ardman presented the updated data at the eha meeting this was in relapsed refractory flit 3 and most of these patients 70 percent had had one or more prior flit 3 inhibitors so we know seven eight years ago we would be expecting a response rate of 10 to 20 percent you know with available therapies and it was very promising to see that in this study we had a 80 percent. Uh, CRC rate, which included count recovery and marrow emissions. Half of these were with count recovery, half of these were marrow emission. But as you- you mentioned, I think the focus, especially in FLIP 3 maybe IDH, NPM1 is moving much more towards molecular annotation of responses rather than just is the CR, CRI, MLFS. And what we're seeing with these combinations is at least when we compare them to historical single agent Giltrit NIP, art NIP data, the molecular clearance rates seem to be much higher, 60, 70 percent, compared to about 20, 30 percent. So hopefully these combos will be emerge over time to be the next approaches. I think one has to be very careful with myelosuppression. I think especially physicians who may want to try this in the community or in smaller academic centers, I think it would be very important to communicate with one of your local experts who have done this, published it, or have a lot of experience with it, because there are a lot of nuances that are not presented as regarding early bone marrow, stopping venetoclax, use of growth factors, growth factors, dose reductions of Giltritinib, things like that. So I think these are very powerful regimens, uh, but that also means that they can also have severe myelosuppression toxicity, if not uh, used appropriately. But I do think in the future, uh, doublets or triplets, and I don't know which one will emerge. Maybe in salvage, the doublet could be enough. Some of the data is suggesting, especially if you wanna take them to transplant, maybe frontline, the HMA does have a blanket suppressive effect on other parallel mutations that could emerge. I think this is a learning curve, but. I think we do need to highlight that these are quite myelosuppressive and one has to be uh, very cautious and have expertise uh, you know, in using them going forward. But I think overall interesting uh, future here for targeted therapies. With that, let me turn it over to Dr. Thal. Um, so Dr. Thal, there were some updates on the MRD approaches and prospective data now showing use of MRD from the ELN and i think you are very familiar and participated in that could you please highlight and update what you thought was interesting there
0: sure thank you i think it was really an interesting study with respect to ngs based mrd because we all talk about ngs based mrd but every group has its own essay and every essay has its own unique level of sensitivity and the question that the ELN working group for MRD really wanted to answer is, can we standardize it? Can we find a way to standardize it? And how can different labs work with the standardized protocol? So the study that was led by Michael Horza and myself um, was a study that, uh, where a lot of European groups as well as US groups uh, participated. And every group got um, a standardized set of uh, samples. And they followed a certain protocol that was given as a standard protocol as well as their protocol that they use in-house. And uh, the bottom line of this analysis is that when you give a standardized protocol and a standardized way of analyzing this this, uh, protocol, we get very, very similar outcomes. So basically, it is possible to standardize NGS-based MRD and with a standardized protocol, it also appears that the sensitivity of the level is much better than if everyone has its own kind of in-house protocol. So I think the way to for- look um, to go forward is really to have a standardized um, program for NGS-based MRD that should also be part of clinical trials, so that we all talk about the same thing. And Neville, I think you already touched an important point. We always look at what are... Um, markers doing during targeted therapies, and I think one of the challenges will be to follow clonal evolution, like especially with FLT3 inhibitors. We do know that with midostaurin in the ratified trial, 50% of patients lost the FLT3 ITD clone when they relapsed, so we really need to be aware about clonal evolution. We need to look for clonal evolution at the time of relapse, and we need to take that also into consideration when we do NGS-based MRD. Because if we just look at one marker, we might be unfortunate and that marker that is being lost is the one that is not driving clonal evolution.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's a very, very important point. And I think we're seeing this again and again, you know, FLT3 is probably the tip of the iceberg where this is most well described. A lot of the relapses, especially when we use potent upfront therapies like, you know, induction therapy with FLT3 inhibitors, whether it's serofinib, that Andrew Wayne, the group from Australia, showed a very similar phenomenon, that many of the relapses yeah. after 3 plus 7 sorafinib at as ASH, they had shown this data, almost 50 to 60% were flip 3 negative. Uh, similar data, as you uh, mentioned, has been published. Uh, from the mitostorin subset. And so I think it's quite important that we do sequential uh, NGS monitoring. And I think even yeah. in the community and other centers, this is probably a message. And I think this may not be unique to just FLID3. We actually have a dataset coming out with TP53, where we are seeing even emergent yeah. TP53 mutations, not as common, but but it is seen. And even with IDH, which is historically always considered a founding clone, We definitely have seen a few patients. Now, it could be a sensitivity issue. That's always the question, is this truly emergent or is this expansion of a very small clone that our traditional commercial NGS will not capture? That we don't know, but I think the point is, now that we have all these therapies, FLT3 inhibitors, IDH1 and 2, maybe hopefully menin inhibitors that target MLL and NPM1, maybe drugs like macrolumab and APR, the target TP53, it's gonna be critical to look for these because I think that will give our patient a best chance if we can find a targetable mutation and use that particular therapy. So I think mm-hmm. that this is a great effort uh, by the ELN and not only in using MRD for prognosis after therapy, but also to understand you know, what forms of relapse and how different molecular relapses could uh, occur. Um, any comments on that, uh, Eunice?
2: Yeah, so I do think that that's very important. Clonal evolution is just yet another challenge that we have for the treatment of AML. I think in the context of that, I think it's interesting to discuss the IDH inhibitor data combining IDH inhibitor, IDH1 plus azacitidine and acetinib. Uh, plus azacitidine for treatment of IDH1 and IDH2 mutant disease. As you know, this was a trial where IDH1, IDH2 mutant disease, uh, sponsored by Agios, uh, were randomized to receive either the idh uh, and, uh, inhibitor plus azacitidine versus azacitidine alone, uh, and looking at event-free survival, overall response, as well as biomarkers, and uh, including for anacitinib 2HG and the variant allele frequencies. So, somewhat disappointingly, uh, although there was significant improvements in overall survival, 60-70% as opposed to 20 or 30% with azacitidine alone, uh, and there was some improvement in event-free survival. Overall survival was not significantly enhanced by using the combination mm-hmm. of cytidine plus the IDH inhibitor. And that was very surprising because given uh, the differences, and there were also marked differences in the biomarkers and the amount of 2-HG suppression that you were getting with inclusion of an IDH inhibitor and suppression or decreases in the variant allele frequency. So why didn't this translate into an overall survival advantage? So it is hypothesized that potentially many of the patients who had received azacitidine alone in the control arm uh, went on to get sequential therapy with an IDH inhibitor. And so that may have uh, been the difference in in not having any significant gap between the two treatment arms. I don't think that we should necessarily view those as negative trials, but just as, as a important um, reminders that you know there is the biomarkers and there's the molecular studies and there's also you know the uh, the reality and what happens in the clinic and so I think that the and this this study would sort of argue against using these molecular or biomarker studies and I would say no I think I would be more comfortable moving forward with it if I was to give IDh uh, inhibitor and combining it with HMA therapy particularly because as was mentioned by my colleagues, there is that potential for clonal evolution. Mm-hmm. So having the HMA on board with the targeted therapy offers a backbone that could, over the long term, although it hasn't been demonstrated, suppress the development of additional clonality. But those studies, I think, are going to be debated, I think, for a, a little while. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that data was very interesting.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And and as, of course, you're very familiar, the similar uh, data has been at least press-released from the Tritnib versus azacitidine in the swing yeah. study, right, um, that we cannot discuss any details, but we do know that the azagiltritinib did not improve the primary endpoint, which is overall survival on the interim analysis. And I think this is kind of getting into a broader question, and, and probably will require, and hopefully sooner than later, readjustment of how we conduct these trials and what endpoints we look at. Because I think 10 years ago, yeah when all we were using was traditional intensive chemo, three plus seven, clag FLAG-based regimens, uh, MRD negativity by flow or achievement of CR really did correlate very well with survival. But I think in the era of these targeted therapies and I think this is going to get even much more complicated in the era of immune therapies, uh, hearing what we do from all our solid tumor and lymphoma colleagues. I don't think that those may be the ideal surrogates anymore for response. So I think as we use these agents, you know, looking at things like time to next therapy, duration of remissions, molecular clearance are probably going to be more important than just pure, is it a full CR versus not? And, and I, I think that has to be done because when you look at some of this data, for example, with the ASA idh versus ASA, you clearly see that the true CR rate was 55 versus 12%. And of course, those patients were transfusion independent. And so there's a huge quality of life improvement, even though at the end of the day, they may have lived 24 months. How did they live those 24 months, right? Was it much less time in the hospital, much less transfusions, better count recovery quality of life? And and this is stuff that I think other groups have started to collect and in AML, maybe important um, going into the future, so uh, very, very important uh, to start looking at the trial designs and endpoints uh, coming forward. Um, mm-hmm. What about um, other therapies emerging? Uh, some may have been discussed, may not have been discussed at EHA-ASCO, uh, Dr. Thal, what is of interest right now in, in Europe uh, in the immunotherapy, new targeted therapy uh, arena?
0: Yeah. So maybe of note, uh, evozidinib and inazidinib did not get approval by the EMA. So for us, these agents are not available. We took part in the clinical trial, so we do have experience with both substances. And I was also surprised you know, by the trial results that the combination didn't really um, lead to an improved overall survival. Disappointing. That's really disappointing. And uh, but that, as you already mentioned, is really also the question, what are the the important outcomes? And I think we have to ask ourselves what are clinical meaningful outcomes and what are the FDA and the EMA looking at? Because for us in Europe, um, it's important that the drugs get EMA approval. If Mm -hmm. If we don't get EMA approval, um, then we, we cannot use the substances. And um, therefore, I think it will be important to really see what is uh, meaningful for the patient and then convince uh, the, the, the authorities, um, the FDA and EMA, of that. And for us in Europe, I think it's a similar development as in the United States. Um, Mapulimab is an interesting agent. We are all kind of hoping for immunotherapy, especially bites or CAR T-cells. But as we do know here, we are really not very advanced. I mean, the CAR T-cell program is is really, you know, really disappointing uh, as compared to the ALL um, CAR T-cell program. We do have some targets like uh, CD33, CD123, and uh, also FLIT3, which I think uh, is interesting. But um, so far, I I, I think we really see challenges. And the challenges in AML are related to not all AML cells expressing the target, like the target 123 or the target uh, CD33 or FLIT3, and also... The problem, if it's expressed, it's not just expressed on AML cells. It might also be expressed on normal hematopoiesis. And uh, this, of course, can lead to horrendous hematotoxicity. So I think there will be still some challenges to overcome before we have good CAR T-cells for AML. But I think that's all we are, dre- we are dreaming of that. And I think in the meantime, it will really be combination therapy, as you already mentioned, that we combine, we need to CLUX with HMA and other agents. And um, for us in, in, in the LSG in the AML study group here in Germany, we cooperate with the Hovon study group. And I think we have some interesting trials coming up Um Looking at combinations like ibrutinib, inazidinib with intensive chemotherapy, and if you think about it, it's amazing how many patients you need to screen in order to fill the trial. So it's a huge trial, and it's you know a lot of screening that needs to be done. You know, over 800 patients are supposed to be included but just think about how many patients need, need to be screened with the frequency of IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. So that trial is uh, ongoing. Another trial, which I think is also interesting in frontline therapy, 7 plus 3 plus midosturin versus gilteritinib, because right now I'm using gilteritinib only in the relapse refractory setting. And I think it will be interesting to see what role it has in the frontline setting in combination with intensive chemotherapy. But then I think the big thing will be for the uh, non intensively treatable patients, the combinations that we already discussed, triplets.
1: Great. Yeah. Eunice, uh, any thoughts on upcoming stuff?
2: Um, okay. So I, I just wanted to focus on sort of a, a new targetable subgroup. So uh, MPM1 mutant patients have. Uh, constitute up to 25 to 30 percent of our newly diagnosed patient population, and we know that that tends to be, um, as you mentioned, with IDH a founder mutation. But up until now, we've had difficulty in really using npm on mutations other than knowing that they're favorable prognosis to determine really uh, outcomes or, or targeted therapy for those patients. I think moving into the future, there's a couple of uh, new developments which I'm I'm sort of excited about for that that subset of patients. One is the the data uh, updated analysis from the uh, oral azocytidine quasar phase mm-hmm. three study, which uh, presented by Dr. Doner and colleagues, uh, which demonstrated subgroup analysis of patients who had uh, benefited in the, in the quasar study from the addition or the, the use of oral azocytidine following induction consolidation chemotherapy. For those individuals who were in morphological CR but unable to proceed to allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Now, a couple of caveats with that trial. Uh, most of the patients on that trial did not receive three to four cycles of consolidation chemotherapy. The overwhelming majority mm-hmm. of them received one or best two. So we don't know potentially um, based on that patient selection what. Patients who had gotten the full four cycles of HIDAC would have done. But clearly when they did the subgroup analysis, patients who are NPM1 mutant had vastly superior overall survival um, over patients uh, who had NPM1 mutant who had received placebo only. And that may just be because NPM1 is a favorable marker for patients getting aciterabine-based the therapy, but the differences between the two groups um, uh, were uh, are, uh, re- obtained, which were pretty striking. And so it begs the question of for those patients who are in NPM1 positive, whether that would be a marker that we would be potentially pursuing Uh, oral azacitidine after uh, even two or three or four cycles of HIDEC. I don't think the Quasar study addresses that, but certainly Mm -hmm. it's making us look up and say, if you are MPL-wide mutant, uh, are we going to treat those fit, intensively treated patients a little bit differently than we do now? New standard of care type of discussion. The other uh, interesting uh, development, which has been presented over the last few conferences, is really, as you mentioned, the use of menin inhibitors, targeting the menin uh, epigenetic complex, which regulates transcription in patients uh, who are NPM1 as well as uh, KMT2A rearranged. So no real data updates uh, at this meeting, but certainly there are two uh, menin inhibitors in phase one development uh, for both NPM1 mutant and KMT2A rearranged, uh, one from Cura Oncology, the other from Syndex. Uh, Early phase one study seems to suggest that patients with those target mutations can uh, have responses to both of those inhibitors, that they're uh, fairly well tolerated with maybe some QTC prolongation interaction with azoles. So I am uh, increasingly enthusiastic about uh, the uh, possibility that we may now be having newer therapies for those patients with MPM1 and other mutations.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that there's a, you know, a lot of exciting drugs coming along, absolutely, as uh, many of them mentioned by Felizidaz and uh, units. Uh, I think you know for TP53, we're, we're quite excited about this group of CD47 mm-hmm. and serp alpha that was mentioned. And one of those that's most advanced is Megrolomap, but there are many, many others uh, that are also now into clinic with ALX and Trillium and others. And I think this will be both conceptually and clinically very, very important and nice to see it progress because for many years, we've been working on different immunotherapy approaches and we tried the traditional immune checkpoints using T cells such as pd one pdl one CTLA-4 for many years, hoping that like solid tumors, lymphomas, there could be benefit in AML and MDS. And unfortunately, after trying many different combinations and approaches, these drugs don't seem to have the same degree of benefit. And part of this may be related to T cell dysfunction. And a lot of papers are not coming mm-hmm. out as to fitness of T cells and T cell infiltration and how this is really abrogated in myeloid malignancies. And so now we're switching our approach to other innate immune activating approaches such as NK cells and macrophages. And I think that's where migrolimab and other CD47s Mm -hmm. fit in where they activate not the T-cell immune system, but more the innate immune system macrophages. And some of the data, again, is looking encouraging in the early data sets. Of course, we need mature data, and two randomized phase 3s have started, one in MDS frontline of azamagro versus ASA, and then one in AML, especially in that very difficult unmet need TP53 of mm-hmm. versus azamagrolimab. So we will uh, see, and hopefully one or both of these will bring this new class of immunotherapies The other, I agree. I think CAR-Ts eventually uh, will find a place in AML, but I think we're a few years away. The challenges we have, as you mentioned, Felicitas, compared to ALLR, one is we don't have as specific and as uh, well-marketed markers. For example, CD123 is expressed on the endothelium, it's expressed in pulmonary tissue, cardiac tissue, CD33, of course, in the liver. And so the problem is if you have a very high potent target towards uh, agent that targets these markers, you also start getting a lot of toxicities uh, in these organs. Unlike, for example, CD19, which is almost exclusively on the surface of the B lymphoblast, and you can really attack it very aggressively. So maybe dual-car approaches, or maybe using cars with suicide switches, or having early transplant as a bridge, if you achieve MRD negativity, I think we will have to be a little bit more innovative in AML. And then recently I was quite interested to see some, it wasn't presented at ASCO, but there was a press release uh, using NK cell therapy in AML. Mm -hmm. There's a group called FATE uh, with FD156 being their lead compound. And this is not a car, it's actually just high volume CD16 activated NK cells that are being infused. And uh, they released that they had five out of 12 CRCRIs and multiply relapsed AML. And they actually showed data in lymphoma which looked quite fantastic, nine out of 11 CRs and multiple relapsed lymphoma using the same approach. So the question now is, do you really need a CAR or could you mm-hmm. use high volume NK cells, do ADCC, target leukemia cells and potentially get high responses without any of the CRS or ICANS or infusion reactions? So I think there's a lot to come. Uh, in both immunotherapy and targeted. I completely agree with units. I think the menin inhibitors, even though the data is very early, are clearly demarcating themselves as very, very active drugs, high potency, uh, single agent activity, even in fourth and fifth salvage, overall well tolerated. Uh, Many of them, the first two, Syndax and uh, Kura are in clinic. Others have started early clinical trials, Daiichi, JNG and others. So uh, the data looks like these could be like IDH, FLT3, or maybe even more potent, based on the 50 to 60 percent responses that are seen. And of course, again, quickly moving them into combinations, frontline, maybe adding them to HMA, and all of these approaches uh, could be of interest. So I think a lot uh, that will be coming, you know, going forward uh, with these different um, drugs and approaches. Any other interesting ID thoughts or um, presentations? I know Eunice, you mentioned that there was some long-term updated data. Uh, uh, with the Um what were your impressions of that overall, and how does it impact your practice, if any?
2: Well, I think it's important when um, using some of these targeted therapies to continue to, to use these targeted therapies. I think, as you mentioned, There certainly are distinctions between the targeted therapies and and conventional chemo. Conventional chemo, typically for intensive, we do a certain number of cycles and we stop. And I think with the the targeted therapies, what we've seen is really the most effective approach as long as they maintain that clone is to continue these drugs uh, for long periods of time. And we've seen studies looking at you know, not only combining with upfront therapy, uh, you con- continuing it during consolidation and importantly now extending this post-transplant. And I think that in these patients mm-hmm. treated with gilteritinib long-term on the admiral so almost invariably all these, most of the majority of those patients went to transplant, but the common denominator is that they all stayed on their gilteritinib. Uh, and, and I have a patient who is a long-term survivor who post-transplant, who is on her uh, third year of gilteritinib maintenance with no evidence of disease so i think that the, that is uh, the importance of saying some of these targeted therapies may need to be continued indefinitely to have the, the mm-hmm. most efficacy i think that we uh, one of the the things that is less exciting um, but uh, is uh, looking at changing our backbone therapy uh, for some of these targeted therapies uh, we've seen the uh the emergence of oral hypomethylene agents is probably the most uh, practical and requested uh, agents in my clinic from both patients and community providers is uh, when can I start using oral azacitabine or oral dacitabine uh, in place of parenteral HMA therapy for patients with MDS and AML at every stage. And I think we are getting there. Obviously, the oral azacitidine is different pharmacokinetically from systemic azacitidine. So for those people who are thinking about this, please do not use oral azacitidine um, the same way that you would use uh, IV or sub-Q-Azacitidine. It's a completely different formulation, different pharmacokinetics. It's not the same drug. uh, there are studies that are looking at some of those uh, in those settings, but clearly not a one-to-one substitution. In contrast, uh, the oral decidabine comp- uh, compound has been shown in detailed pharmacokinetic analyses to be very equivalent one-to-one with the systemic or the IV decitabine. So for that drug, we use it for five days, similarly to our five days of uh, decitabine. However, in the U.S., at least, uh, the oral decitabine complex is not indicated for uh, newly diagnosed AML. It's only indicated for high-risk MDS. And so there are a number of ongoing trials using one or both of these agents um, uh, and as a new backbone, uh, we have a trial looking at the oral decitabine replacing a- a- azacitidine in combination with venenoclax. There's a number of maintenance studies. So that is on the horizon. But I think right now that we're not uh, using those off-label uh, just because of the potential risks. And definitely, we're not using oral azacitidine as a substitute. We also saw data presented by Jessica Altman again um, at the ASCO meeting with uh, a novel sort of more Potent uh, uh, new cytarabine. Asp, asp, I don't remember B, uh, the name of it. As new cytarabine formulation, um, which was studied as a single agent um, in unfit ML patients, and had very encouraging tolerability, safety profile, and high response rates—about 30, 40 percent—was uh, well tolerated. And and, and single therapy, again, may not represent the current standard of care, but gives us some potential about whether this novel, uh, as as could be a new backbone, uh, theoretically in combination with venanoclax or in some of the more upfront regimens, FLAG or CLAG or something like that, uh, that we could be using in combination with or without uh, targeted therapy. Um, now, the only caveat with that being was that the again another quote-unquote negative study was vinaclyx plus lodositibine, the VLAC trial. Um, there was no overall survival benefit in that, despite higher CR rates, overall response rates. So, it's not clear whether uh, uh, practitioners, at least in in the United States, would be using another cytarabine. Uh, backbone in combination with venetoclax, as opposed to our colleagues in Europe who would potentially be more familiar with that. Um, I would say that most of us here would still favor an HMA backbone in combination with venetoclax, but I think that uh, the drug does have some potential, some legs moving forward.
1: Yeah, I I think the oral HMA is a very important point. I think this is going to change practice over years. I don't think we're there yet i mean it is it's not a superiority argument like the menin flip 3 and idh but i think it is a major convenience factor and also you know conceptually to be able to give oral oral doublet let's say or oral oral triplet even if we get there in the next couple of years it's going to be quite amazing given that 10 years ago mm-hmm. we were pushing high dose intensive chemo for everybody with very limited other options. But I think it is important to caution that we don't yet have any data combining either the oral acetabine Aztecs or the CC486 oral azacidine with Venetoclax. Those studies are ongoing. Hopefully, they will show equivalence. Especially, I agree with um, Eunice, the oral acetabine I think is the one that were most comfortable with for equivalence given that it was approved based on bioequivalence, whereas oral acidine was approved in a specific setting maintenance, where in fact the fact that it delivered only 30 to 40% of the true total IV acidine may have been the big benefit that you're giving a chronic lower dose over time rather than a full dose. So will that translate then if you use CC486 plus Venn frontline? We don't know. We just have to you know, wait for those data sets to emerge. But uh, let me turn this to Felicita. So in Europe, how is the maintenance being viewed? Do you think this is something that will catch on big time or not mm-hmm. yet?
0: Well, I think we, we do have now good data for the CC486, and it has also recently been approved in Europe, so a little bit later than in the United States, So, but it's now available. And I think it's an interesting drug. We, we took part in the trial ourselves. And I think the big decision now will be if you have a patient at the age of 65 who has you know, some comorbidities, do you treat them with or him with um, intensive chemotherapy, followed by maintenance CC four eight six, or do you choose ASA Ven up front? And we don't have a direct comparison for that right now. And right. Um, I think that will be, you know, a good, you know, question in the future because obviously the benefit at the beginning for the patient studying with ASA Ven is that you can do it as an outpatient. You don't need to be an inpatient, and um, whereas if you start with intensive chemotherapy um, upfront, you may you, you're not allowed to forget that, uh, especially in patients above the age of sixty, there's still early mortality which you may fear. And patients going into the trial in the CC486 trial, they were all already in remission. So the trial started, you know, with a patient population that already survived intensive chemotherapy. So it will be interesting to see in the real world how these two options play out and uh, who will go for what. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll have to see. And otherwise, for maintenance therapy, I think it will be really important to address the issue of how long do you need to keep the patient on the um, FLIT3 inhibitor. And uh, I think Onise pointed out very nicely that it's still important to transplant the patient uh, who is on gilturitinib. Long-term cure is best achieved with um, allotransplant and possibly gilturitinib after allotransplant. And um, I think the Mayer trial, um, which I think was presented at ASH two years ago, pointed out quite nicely that post-allo TKI have a very important effect in FIT3-ITD-mutated patients. And that patients who are treated with serafinib versus patients only treat not treated with a TKI um, do better with the serafinib. But what you can also see is once you stop the TKI, the uh, relapse occur again. So I think we, we are still not sure how long do you need to treat the patient um, after stem cell transplantation with a TKI?
1: Yeah, I think I think that that's a great point. And I think post-transplant, at least in our group, we absolutely are using maintenance in the flit 3 mutated patients, where girtritinib is kind of what we're using on an ongoing study. Sorafenib, as you said, the soramine and a Chinese, a large study, 100 yeah, patients on each arm, both published one in JCO Lancet Oncology, showed a clear RFS and OS benefit. So I do think, you know, using maintenance post-transplant with flit 3 inhibitors is, is really now quote-unquote standard of care approach. Of course, there is the largest of those studies, which is the BMT transplant network study of gilatritinib versus placebo, mm-hmm. 400 patients post-transplant randomized to the flit 3 inhibitor versus observation that hopefully will read out uh, in the next six to eight months. And and if that shows clear benefit, then I think we'll put gilatritinib in a clear approval path for post-transplant mm-hmm. maintenance flit 3 inhibition. So that I think will be... Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting going forward. And I agree, I think, um, you know, one of the closing thoughts is I think we're gonna have a competing challenge, but again, it's great to have this uh, issue compared to 10 years ago of, A's of N or A's of N triplets versus induction maintenance, right? Because now both of them are showing improvement, but I completely agree with you fellas, it does in our group and for me personally, uh, and I'm sure Eunice has the same issues, is how do I find that 50 to yeah. 70 year old patient, right? who I felt was unfit, enough to not get to transplant, exactly. uh, but I didn't feel unfit enough, you know, that I gave him induction. So you're right. If I already feel that that patient has comorbidities, cardiac pulmonary issues, PS is poor, I'm usually going for Ven or now maybe even Ven, IDH, HMN, FLIP3, VEN, whatever, MAG, or all of these combos. Versus if I give intensive, then sure, there's a few people who fall apart with intensive chemo 5%, 10% and cannot make your transplant. But for the broad majority, yeah, I'm pushing towards transplant. So I think the next really critical trial will be if you give induction, you get a remission, then you do maintenance versus transplant. Could maintenance then in some way equate or replace transplant? But without that... Yeah we have had a big challenge. I mean, I really have not been able to find patients to start CC486. Eunice, what's your experience there?
2: So I do think that CC486 is an advantage for the, again, those select patients, 50 to 75, who get intensive, but can't go on to transplant. But I must point out that some people would argue whether uh, the oral is really represents a true maintenance drug, because a true maintenance drug, in my in my mind, is something that is like a, the ALL maintenance. So you take it for two to three years, and the disease never comes back. Yeah the data with the oral azacitidine and the quasar study, one could argue that it just delays uh, the I time in it. which people leave. And if you take the herbs out far enough, they uh, conjoin. So yep. the data with this trial looks a lot like the ASA uh, one trial, where you gave azacitidine to patients who had MDS, and you delayed the time uh, until they developed leukemic transformation and died, but everybody just died. So one could argue that the oral aid society and also everybody dies. They just and, and the mm-hmm. curves do at the beginning, they separate and then they come together. So this is not truly maintaining the remission and yeah. curing people, just delaying it. So I would argue that uh, for these patients uh, who are fit enough for an intensive chemotherapy, as Dr. Phil mentioned. Uh, the optimal is to go for a tra- allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Uh, the other question that gets asked a lot is, can I give uh, CC486 or oleazacididine after ven-aza induction, right? So instead of an intensive mm-hmm. induction, giving them a less intensive induction as we move more and more towards that potentially being an option, particularly for uh, some patients, uh, is, is that going to be used in that setting? There's no data in that setting uh, for the use of uh, CC-486, but that's the challenge that we get is as we're getting more people into achieving a response in the unfit category, what are we doing? Are we continuing both drugs? Do we drop one? Could we substitute an oral uh, HMA instead? I think there's a lot of questions, and I know we're we're wrapping up, but I think one of the challenges that we're getting now is uh, who's the best patient for venase induction? Should it be a younger fit patient with poor karyotype? Uh, what if the patient mm-hmm. has P53 disease? Should we not be doing venasa if they have a low variant allele frequency? Should we be actually be doing cytarabine based therapy and send them to transplant because we know that P53 patients treated with venezia don't. Do well. What about the flip-three-mutant patients? We know they can recur after Ven Aza. Maybe we shouldn't be giving ASA to those patients, but with the with the so far presented negative lace wing study, should be giving a TKI in that population. So as our standards have changed and we have more options, um, uh, I think that we're, you know, now sort of questioning what is going to be our backbone. Um, I do agree for the younger FIT patient, allotransplant still provides, despite all of these targeted therapies and novel things, uh, really still provides the best curative therapy.
1: Yeah. And, and I think we don't have to feel bad about that because look at myeloma. They have 15 drugs and the best triplet and quadruplet. True. And we don't want to be inferior to myeloma. Yeah. mean, mm-hmm. And they and they continue to use auto-transplant, right? I mean, yeah. uh, which is still, I mean, it's a total therapy as long as you can get that median survival up to 14, 15 years for a 60 plus patient. I think whatever we do to get there, you know, for today is, is sufficient. But I think with that we'll wrap it up. It was a great discussion uh, of just not ehaasco, but also the global uh, scope of AML and where things are heading. I think in the end of the day, when you if you look at some of the recordings from 10 years ago, this is fantastic. I mean, we would be talking about doses of anthracyclines and 60 versus 90 versus 45. And it's great now to be talking about the doublets and the triplets of targeted therapies and maintenance and you know new approaches. So a lot of progress. And thank you so much, Dr. Thal and Dr. Wang for joining us and look forward to seeing you all soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at VJHeMonk to join in the conversation and you can also visit vjhimong.com for the latest updates in the field. Finally, be sure to subscribe to vjhimong Podcasts which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. See you next time.